Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, where we go now in politics. So with the election voting finished and Joe Biden all but certain to be the president-elect, the attention now shifts to what happens next and how did the press cover the election and how will it cover where the country goes as we move forward. It is notable that nearly half of the country voted again for Donald Trump, despite everything we know and despite all of the great journalism that we've seen over the last four years. And it creates a real challenge for reporters to think about how do we unpack that? How do we think about what it means? And also, what does it mean for the next few months between the election and Trump actually leaving office? which could end up being quite a precarious time. To help us unpack all this, I'm thrilled to be joined by Masha Gessen, staff writer at The New Yorker, a 2017 National Book Award winner, and the author most recently on Surviving Autocracy. Masha and I spoke on the afternoon of November 5th. Welcome, Masha. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you. First, uh, we talked a little bit about of this before we hit the record button. How are you feeling as of this moment on Thursday afternoon about the election? Um, tired. <laughs> I'm feeling tired about the election. I'm feeling like, you know, this is the, the sense of time in 2020 just keeps getting warped. We're in forever March and forever Tuesday. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, uh, I think the most disheartening thing about the election, of course, is that it's this close, is that more than 65 million Americans, the second highest number of votes ever, second only to what, from what we know, what Joe Biden has received in this election, voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. After the mishandling of the COVID pandemic, after the autocratic attempt that he has staged over the last four years, after children in cages, after all that. Yeah. We'll talk about all of those things in a second. But, I mean, you wrote this book called Surviving Autocracy, um, which is just fantastic. And I've read, it a, couple, I've read it a couple of times um, in, in various stages of this campaign. And I read it again earlier this week. Oh, wow. And what's striking about the book is it's, I mean, maybe I just see, maybe you see things through the lens of what you know, but... It, to me, it's a sort of um, it's a lot about media and how the media covers somebody like Trump and the failures that the media made, that the press made and how they how they wrote about him. And it seems particularly apt right now when we're in this period where he is trying to sow doubt about the legitimacy of the election, which comes right out of the autocrats playbook and which you write about. So how do you how do you assess what he's done in that regard in the last, you know, three or four days and how it's been covered. So in, in the book, which is, uh, which is called Surviving Autocracy for a Reason, I use uh, a framework that's developed by a Hungarian sociologist named Balint Magyar. Um, and it's a framework of, that he developed for sort of the, back, the democratic backsliding of Eastern and Central European countries. Um, but he's he's developed an entire sort of series of models for thinking about autocracy. 
And he talks about an autocratic attempt, autocratic breakthrough, and autocratic consolidation. So the three stages in the autocrat's journey. And the autocratic attempt is the stage in establishing an autocracy when the, the autocracy can still be prevented or reversed by electoral means. And the autocratic breakthrough is what happens, uh, the structural and institutional changes that occur that make it impossible to reverse an autocracy peacefully. What I think we're watching now, what we're experiencing now, is an attempted autocratic breakthrough. And if Donald Trump, from you know, after everything that we know now, if Donald Trump succeeds in derailing this election, um, in 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 all the various uh, rhetorical and litigational ways that he's attempting, um, then that will be his autocratic breakthrough. We're definitely not out of the woods, and if he doesn't succeed, but this is really what we're looking at. And I think you know the media. Um, I hope that in surviving autocracy, I come across as being compassionate toward us in the media, because I think I think that some of our failures were inevitable. Mm -hmm. They're sort of built into the uh, uh, the unsolvable problem of covering a lying president. Um, but some of our mistakes were preventable, and I think some mistakes were preventable over the last few days. Certainly, you know the the, the whopper of the front of a front page on the Atlantic Journal Constitution. Yeah, um, that was exactly what Trump was trying to do, right? Yeah, you know, sort yeah, of the, both sides. Right. For people who haven't seen it, it said I don't remember the exact language, but it says something like Trump, whatever. I've won. What does it exactly say? And then it says Biden, colon, whatever he said, and it sort of presents them equally. Actually, it presents Trump as the first one. But do you remember what the exact language was? I believe it's Trump, I've won, Biden, it's not over. Right, yeah. Right. Uh, um, which is exactly what he was trying to do. Um, and, you know, the reason I'm saying with such confidence, it's funny, actually, the reason I'm saying with such confidence this is exactly what he was trying to do is because, uh, as, as you may have heard a few weeks ago, we at the New Yorker were, uh, did this election simulation in which I played Trump, and my guess was that on election night he was going to try to do this. He was going to try to reframe the narrative, uh -huh. basically say Trump claims victory, Biden refuses to concede. Right. Uh, so that's the, you know that's been my assumption. So that's why I sound like I'm inside Trump's head because I feel like I've been there. Um, but you know, but another mistake that um, that everyone made was, of course, broadcasting his announcement live at two o'clock right. in the morning on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, and there were at least three reasons why it absolutely should not have gone live. Right. One is that it was an illegal act. It was a campaign event in the White House, which is illegal. Which he's done many, many of over the last uh, few months. Including the Republican convention, which we're all, again, compl uh, complicit in normalizing. Right. Yeah. We covered it. As a and and I you know I was somebody who did that and it was like two weeks later that I thought oh I shouldn't have done that yeah. <laughs> you know um, but um, but we covered it as as sort of a normal convention and almost as as, as a parenthetical noted that it was illegally held entirely yeah. on federal property right um, so that was one reason it shouldn't have been broadcast live the other reason another reason is that 
He told us ahead of time that he was going to lie. He told us ahead of time yeah. that he was going to claim victory. Like, we knew a lie was coming. Yeah. So why give him direct access to the airwaves to broadcast the lie? And third, and not perhaps as major consideration, but maybe maybe I'm wrong about it not being as major consideration, right? Um, it was a, it was in violation of local DC regula- public health regulations, uh-huh. um, and and national public health recommendations, right? And we in the media also have to be thinking about that. That sort of the the normalizing of the spectacle yeah. of ignoring. Um, public health concerns and staging these large indoor unmasked events yeah is is also something you know that's up to us to prevent yeah i mean he gets he gets away with this stuff because of the repetitive nature of how he does it i mean you know as we know from the um from the barrett event which became a super spreader event which was a largely a political event and a health violation i mean these things have been going on for a while and i think reporters covering it just get sort of inured to it and just sort of accept it as that is as the way it is let, let me let me ask you 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 said something interesting that which is that you give reporters a bit you, you're you're a little bit you're, you're somewhat charitable to the way the press has covered him because um um because you know that people are trying to do the best they can and, and they're and he's such such a font of misinformation and lies and whatever and I understand that in 2016 and maybe 2017, but we're now in 2020 and it's, he's the same person and has been doing the same things. I, I mean, at what point, at what point do you have to stop excusing people and say like, yeah, how, how, how much, how, how long does the sort of standard norm of coverage continue before somebody says, before it finally stops? You know, Kyle, um, I don't think there's a simple answer, right? I mean, because uh, I think there are at least two truly unsolvable problems. Um, and which doesn't mean that there aren't better and worse ways of dealing with them, right? But like, as uh, sort of mathematical problems, they don't have a solution. One is how do you cover uh, untrue or nonsensical statements that nonetheless have real life consequences, right? You can't ignore them. You can't really in good conscience de-amplify them because they do have real life consequences. And, and let me explain what I mean, right? Uh, probably the best example is the inject bleach yeah. press conference, um, which the next day, which was nonsensical on the face of it, right? Um, and the next day, Trump said that he didn't mean it. And yet on that night, poison centers across the country were already inundated with calls yeah. from people who were either ingesting it, injecting it, or considering ingesting or injecting it. So real-life consequences are there. right? Uh, you can't not cover it. You can't pretend that it didn't happen. Uh, you can't cover it as something that is entirely nonsense because even though it is nonsense it has real life consequences right and that sort of dilemma keeps presenting itself over and over again i think there are better and worse ways of doing it but there's no good way yeah yeah no and the other the other unsolvable problem is um how do you avoid normalizing something that's become normal uh this is the president this is what he does every day 
like many, 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 many times a day. Um, this is what policy has devolved to. This is what diplomacy has devolved to. Uh, this is what, 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 what politics has become. So uh, on the one hand, it is normalizing, and I think terribly wrong, to cover it as politics, as diplomacy, as strategy, as policy, and to use that kind of normalizing language. On the other hand, it is our current normal. And again, you know, I think there are better and worse ways, but there's no better. You talked at the um, at the outset about the the continuum of of the sort of march to to, to autocracy, and where we, you you laid out where you thought we were. What is your what is your guess right now about where how this is going to play out? I don't think that people in our profession should make guesses about how things are going to play out. I actually think this is one of the things uh, the sort of American journalistic ticks that are, uh, that are bad. Sorry. Uh, uh, like, <laughs> like, I'm sorry, Kyle. Yeah, I, I probably should have been, I'm a little bit too tired to, to be polite. No, you don't need to be polite. But, um, but, you know, it's like, yeah, like everybody wants to know what, what's going to happen. Um, and so we fall into the trap of, 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 of trying to, to predict what's going to happen, but we don't know, right? All we know yeah. is what's happening now. Yeah. And and um, and perhaps ways of thinking about it. The one thing that I that I would like to say, and I, I have a column about this today, is that assuming that Biden wins, Trump has actually uh, done an incredible amount to make autocracy possible in this country. Mm-hmm. And considering what we know now about the real extent of of the support that he has, right? I mean. Uh, a lot of us have been saying for a long time that, look, you know, the Russians did not elect Donald Trump. Americans elected Donald Trump. 60 million Americans elected Donald Trump. Well, now, after four years of Donald Trump, 68 million of them, mm-hmm. us, are still voting for him. That's a huge movement and a movement that's likely to become an aggrieved movement, which is, which is a boon mm. for, for totalitarian-type movements, right? Um, and uh, and there's been major change. Sort of, that he's built this uh, this autocratic vertical from the White House to to the courts, which he has mm-hmm. packed, uh, including the Supreme Court, to the Justice Department, which he has turned into his personal law enforcement um, and 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 private law firm, right? Um, to the Senate, all of the and and Fox News. This is the Trumpian vertical, and if it is beheaded, it is it, it is still structurally there. And I'm really fearful that, first of all, Joe Biden, if he is elected, doesn't have um, the resources to try to dismantle it. It's harder to dismantle than it is to build. And also, it doesn't look like he's going to have a majority in the Senate uh, at this point. But... But also, he is politically and sort of temperamentally inclined to toward the art of the possible and to bipartisanship and to working the system, none of which is going to address the problem of the damage that Trump has done. Yeah. And that's a point that you make in your book, which is that this is about the systems that are, that, that are in place um, and how do we sort of address those um, and I do worry about that um, now going forward. If Biden comes in, 
that a lot of the political press is going to think that is going to sort of say the problem was Trump and um, the problem is now gone. Um, I mean, you sort of, you can see there was a piece that didn't get a lot of attention that was in the times on Monday. So the day before the election was about speculation about whether Don Jr. may run for president and in 2024 and, and what, or whether he would um, become the new chairman of the Republican national committee. And, and there was even a quote in there from somebody saying, you know, he's an amazing charismatic guy and he could basically do anything he wants. And, and it was all this. And there, to me, it sort of just struck me as like, there is a itch among political reporters to sort of like, just let's just go back to how things were somehow, which I think is in a way sort of dangerous. So how, how should, given what you just said about how this is a, and I haven't heard this phrase, but this vertical movement, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, how, how do, how do reporters think about continuing to cover that in an effective way? Um, yeah. So a, a word about the vertical, uh, it's actually an interesting term because it's a term that Putin has been using to, from the time that he took office, he's been talking about building the vertical of power. Yeah. Um, by which he sort of, it was his way of signaling that, um, that he's going to restore law and order, of course, to the country. But it's also a term that the Bond Magyar, the, the, the author of the model that I've been using, yeah. uses, um, he uses the, the term, the vertical of vassalage, which I think is beautiful. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's the same sort of idea, right? It's, 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 it's a command center. It is, and it is, um, it, it is the sort of the spine of a system that otherwise looks terribly inefficient and chaotic, but it is recognizable if you kind of know what to focus on. And so that's one, that's part of the answer to your question, I think, is we focus on that. We, we refuse to act like our national nightmare is over. And in, it, that is in large part up to, to us in the media because the, the politicians, it's their job to start passing legislation, to start, you know, acting to the extent that is possible, to uh, to rebalance and renormalize the uh, the system in Washington. And it is at this point up to the commentariat, or at least up to the people you know who are not in elected office, to keep raising the alarm. So that's on us. Yeah. I mean, you say that. God, you sound so despondent. No, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not despondent. I mean, I think temperamentally, Biden is not going to encourage this effort at all. I mean, he's all about he's talking about healing and getting the country, putting the country back together and moving forward. Um, so, um, I, you talk in the book about the need for. The, the reporters to reporters to sort of like finally shed this kind of objectivity notion and, and sort of, you know, acknowledge that they're engaged in this fight against this thing, which even today, even after four years of Trump, people still have a hard time doing. And I just fear that like, 
with Trump gone, it's going to be even harder for them to muster that. Yeah, and again, you know, I hope that I that uh, that I come across in the book as having some compassion for for why it's so hard. Uh, certainly for, say, the New York Times, which in some ways I think has been most guilty of the the tone of extreme restraint that ultimately serves to normalize uh, what we've been living through. Um, at the same time, what does the New York Times have? You know, a building in Times Square and a recognizable tone and a, a kind of position, you know, uh, that that Jay Rosen calls the the view from nowhere. It has its institutional culture. If it throws its institutional culture out the window, it's no longer the New York Times. And I think that um, that it is important to acknowledge that uh, that. So repositioning ourselves uh, in in politics comes at a cost, uh, and so maybe we should ask, you know, is it worth the price? Knowing full well that we're going to pay for uh, for for this, right, with with a sense of loss of identity, um, with a, perhaps a sense that we don't know what we're doing. Um, with a sense that we're um, we don't enjoy the same kind of clarity when we feel like we're actually actively engaged in a political argument, do we agree to pay that price? Because the stakes are that high, and because the situation is so abnormal uh, that we have to claim a more active political stance. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you've you've made that choice. Right. I've made that choice, but you know it, it, it's easier for me. I'm a columnist, and I'm at the New Yorker. Yeah. That's that. That's two things that make it a lot easier because the New Yorker is a much less sort of culturally bound, it's agile uh, right. vessel. And you're an individual as opposed to an inst. I mean, you know, I am individual. indeed an individual as opposed to an institution. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I think your your argument, maybe I am reading into it more than 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 you meant. But my, your argument is that it's a, that that it is a choice of, that ultimately people, institutions, to be true to their, at least their, to their, to their sort of journalistic souls are going to have to make. Um. Yes. It, it, and I think that what we uh, that there's there's wonderful work by Barbie Zelizer, who I don't know if she would want to use this way, but you know she she's thought through uh, through, uh, through the relationship between democracy and the media, and she's made the point that journalism is possible without democracy. That you can you can look around, you could look at many profoundly undemocratic countries and find journalism there. But continuing that line of thought, I would say, yes, journalism is possible without democracy. We can still continue to exist as this country deteriorates. In some ways, our jobs will become more exciting and more interesting. But democracy is not possible without journalism. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that and knowing um, that, that it's not a question of our professional survival, but our professional choices will have a direct impact on whether the society can survive as a democracy. You know, that kind of reframes uh, 
the choice and I think makes the stakes more clear. Masha, it's great to talk to you. It's good to talk to you. Thank you for I really taking appreciate time. it. You can read our coverage of the ongoing election drama on CJR.org, as well as follow our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and watch us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.